the mystery to the athlete or to those who are trying to access these states or these is, you know, wouldn't it be great if I can just have it on tap? You can. Alrighty, welcome beautiful people to another episode of the Getting Mental podcast. I'm your host Luke and I'm recording this post episode with Basim Yunus. Now what an incredible episode. Lots of light bulb moments, lots of moments of realizations. He's taught thousands of breathwork workshops, specifically rebirthing breathwork across the world and has spent I believe 26 years teaching and practicing meditation. This episode's a real treat. It was certainly a pleasure for me to listen to the wise words of Bassam and how he went from the war zone in Lebanon to teaching people how to self-actualize. Now, if you like this episode, please give this podcast a follow. Give it a five-star rating, a share, a like, whatever you wish, and I hope you enjoy. Now to the episode. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for the invite. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I love having conversations, as you know, so this is one of those opportunities. <laughs> yeah, and, and you're one of the, the best at it. I've been to one of your philosophy nights philosophy and music i think it was called. oh yes and it was i don't know what was more entertaining i think you but the the music was playing and you were sharing your wisdom which which i'd love to hear about today but before we jump into that just for those listening who might not know you what is what is your story and and how did you get to where you are now and what is it that you're doing right now well that's a i mean who knows, right? Uh, in terms of how we get to w- where we are, it's such a uh, it, it's such an unfolding. We can we can only speculate. We can only make a comment about our experience in retrospect. But in in terms of, um, so I, I'm Lebanese. I came to Australia when I was a kid, twelve years old. So, in, this was in 1977. So an immigrant, if you like, from the Lebanese 70s war at that time. So I was about 12 years old. And um, I would say that the, 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 the early years always have a formative effect on us, right? They create the condition that, that eventually drives us, let's say, to become what we become or to unfold in the way that we do. And for me, the war in Lebanon, obviously, and then coming to Australia at the age of 12, being a, uh, finding myself in this new world, which is so different from the world that I come from uh, or that I came from. And um, with, uh, between eight and 12, it was snipers, bullets, and bombs, and all that sort of stuff. And then from one day to the next, one, one day we, we're dodging snipers, bullets, and the next day we're being ushered into our new home in 316 Livingston Road, Marigville. <laughs> you can imagine it was quite a big shock. It was a, just a crazy change. 
Um, but that 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 early that early experience in Lebanon um, predisposed the way I would approach my life because there was this obvious, although I'm undiagnosed at the time, post-traumatic stress disorder, you would have to say that that was the case. And so it's like having a, a thorn in the thigh that you're always looking for, uh, knowingly or unknowingly, for some way to alleviate this, uh, this pain. And so for me, fortunately, I like to read. And I discovered in my late teens, um, I discovered the Western psychologists and the Western thinkers like Nietzsche and so on, and, and found some kind of meaning in all of that. Uh, the promise of something other than what I already knew, in terms of this pain, I mean, in terms of this internal angst, this feeling like at any moment there was a, another bomb was going to was you can you, you can you can take the war out of the equation, but you can't take the terror. It remains deeply embedded somewhere in your psyche, waiting to find an expression. And so, for me, reading, finding these psycho these these psychologists, Western thinkers, and then uh, I found the Orientalists. After that, I won't go into the details, but I had a, one particular detail I think is important to to refer to because it played an important role in where my life would be oriented and how it would go on. And that was in Paris. I was about 23 and I, uh, I had read a book called Making a New World by John Bennett and one of George Ivanovich's main students. So Making a New World. And I, I was 23 and I in my apartment, I was alone. It was Christmas time. My flatmates had gone back to the States for the Christmas period. So it's a perfect opportunity to sit and, and have this experience. I read the book in one sitting, and I don't know what happened. I, I still don't know what happened, except to say that something happened. And for the next four days, I became insomniac. Quite literally could not sleep a wink. I didn't make anything of the experience except that I just read this book and suddenly upon finishing this book in one sitting, literally, I found myself in this, um, I felt, let's say, entirely estranged to myself and the world around me. I, I, I could, I had no, nothing to ref, reference the experience to either. So it's like not having a language to describe something that you're feeling right? And for four days, I couldn't sleep. I went around literally like a zombie. And uh, I remember writing somewhere, today I am born, you know? And, and it seemed at the time like an affected something to write. But in retrospect, I look back at that, at that as, a, as, a, as a kind of a point, a, a, in which my soul, to use that generic term, was called to, to rise from material slumber. It was stirred. And, 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 but I didn't know what 
I had nothing to refer to in short, but here on my life began to take a, to reorient in a direction that now everywhere I went, I had the texts of the spiritual masters accompanying me everywhere. I was working in fashion at the time. And so these books were with me everywhere I went on these photo shoots and around the world. And, and so in a process of, of, I would call it today of this, this breaking down of this identity, which was already very fragile, right? There was no, I had no solid foundations. There was the war and then becoming an ethnic in this country, being called a WOG, left, right, and center, go back home, yeah, F WOG kind of thing. So, and, and then, so the, the identity was already somewhat fragile and uh, well, like walking on eggshells, literally. And, but now that with this experience, it, it was, it was this kind of continuing disintegration of this identity. It was very painful, very long period of time too. It wasn't a matter of days or weeks or months. It was a matter of years. And I didn't know what was happening, except that inside I understood there was this internal war going on, which I just put down to not being able to make good in the world. You know, I want to do what everybody else had. And and I I put it down to to this idea that things were not going according to some kind of expectation that I must have had that I should by now be working like this. I should have some money. I should this, or I should be doing something with my life or not that I was, the, I was just winging, winging it, so to speak. I, I just accidentally happened to find myself in these uh, experiences that were quite extraordinary. Um, so there was no conscious plan according to this expectation. It's just that there was this generic expectation that we all inherit by virtue of being subjected to the same material that we all receive through the television, through these platforms and so on and so forth. Um, but here I began to get interested in something other in this world of mystery, which promised me salvation, which promised me um, at first promised me uh, a, a, a possibility of being empowered enough to be able to have what I want, to make the money, to get this and to get that, to improve my lot in life. But eventually, of course, it became about something completely unexpected that I could not have imagined. I could not have imagined where this would lead me. And, I, and at 27, I had a couple of curious experiences also that I would describe as transcendental. Um, but I, again, I lacked the reference point. At 27, though, I, I was in Thailand and I... I, I, I discovered meditation in a magazine article, and which um, just happened to be open <laughs> next to me on a table in the middle of nowhere on this tiny small island, uh, Kopangan, and this tiny little place, which today has become a, a world famous detox center. But at the time, 
this is going back about 28, 30 something years ago. I can't even tell you. I'm 56. So that's, this is at 27. So it's quite a few years ago. And it was just this tiny little cottage. But I've since had a, a chance to revisit this place and it's become this world renowned detox center, meditation, yoga, and incredible. Anyway, but at the time, magazine, I read this article. It was beautifully described. It was written in a way that really appealed to my uh, sensibilities. It was, a, it was divided into four parts over a period of 12 months. So four quarter, three quarters or four qu three quarters. And you start like this, then you go on to this, you go on to this, and now you are in meditation. Okay, great. I started there and then. I took to it like a house on fire. I mean, I, could, I can't describe to you the internal angst and anxiety and my internal state. I can't, I wouldn't, I don't even want to describe it. But on eggshells, perhaps, is, um, is uh, and I, of course, did my best to um, find, um, uh, um, some solace from all of that with alcohol and and women and 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 so on. Uh, I never really had any problem, big problem with that, but I did drink quite a lot um, to alleviate or to, to to stabilize, to be able to socialize, um, and, and and just to be in the world. But meditation now came on the scene and. And I took to it like a house on fire. It was a daily practice while my friends um, going back left Thailand. Of course, I was just holidaying there. And I went back to where I was living at the time. By now, I was living in Miami. And while my friends were out partying and doing business, you know, building their business, I was in my room building my meditation practice and and who, who would have expected that someday that that would become my my work and and this is 30 something years ago and and of course there were must have been some judgment from others and uh, not that I noticed but uh, imagine look, back then when it's so unconventional you'd be you would seem like someone from another world, you know, meditation now is this beautiful holistic and everyone does it. It's like they're the cool thing to do, quote unquote. And I imagine that back then people would have looked at you as odd. And I always felt very comfortable being odd, but yes, I always felt, in fact, I even, um, I did, there was something in me which even embellished this oddness. I enjoyed um, standing out. Uh, I don't mean egoically, because I was. A, I am a very, by nature, I'm a very shy person. I spend 90% of my time alone. But there is this um, Gemini, as I described, this Gemini. I'm not a Gemini. I'm Cancer, but there is this Gemini. Um, wanting to share and to communicate of my own inner experience. And so there was this odd mix where something in me wanted to, to stand out uh, from what I, at the time, 
judged as quite offensive. Everything seemed to be prototyped. It all looked like it came out of the same package and I didn't want anything. Something in my own nature really rebelled against that. And so I, I walked around at that time. I wore almost a turban and, and this is in South Beach, Miami. You know, I, I was walking around barefoot. I had very long hair and I, I didn't, in other words, do anything at that period in time to hide this. There was an eccentric exhibitionist there. I dread to say, but, but it was there. Definitely a bit of a showman was there, even though a very reserved and shy. And so, yeah, there was a lot of, uh, but I was seen as an odd person and, and I was very well received. Although I, uh, when I say I was very well received, I mean, I, you know, restaurateurs would open their doors to me and, and it was, I've always, always had the gift, uh, not the, the blessing of being a pleasant, had a pleasant demeanor and, and really thank God for that because I would have been on probably on the street otherwise uh, had I not had. So restaurants would let me in and, you know, and, and there was something that going on. I didn't necessarily, I just appreciated that, that it was like that. Um, but now, yes, and a lot of these people consequently became my students in time. You know, they may have judged me in those days, but suddenly they say, hey, can you teach us how to sit and do nothing? And, and of course, 20, 30 years of that, I'd become somewhat uh, in the know about that internal um, alchemy or internal experience of what what kind of a vehicle meditation uh, can, can be for, because it's what you want. It's a vehicle. It'll take you where you want to go. You know, for where do you want to go? You know, how, how, how what do you want? To, what, what do you want? Uh, so, yeah, eventually, you know, I, I, my journey with meditation went deeper and deeper as my world fell apart. My relationships fell apart. My, work, I started to look like a, a sore thumb. So in the fashion world, I started to run around in sarongs. And so I was no longer getting the jobs. That, <laughs> and I, I didn't know I was having a good time, but I must have been having some, in spite of the pain that I was. So as my world fell apart, and then I and it really did, I mean, I was in, I'm making light of it because it's, how we speak about it, but uh, for eight, nine years, uh, it was a, in a severe depression, uh, functional depression. Um, I still the post-traumatic stress disorder I had not touched because I just turned my back on my childhood, my past. Uh, there was nothing to look at as far as I'm concerned. And I big came interested in the mystery schools and became a student of a certain tradition, quite seriously involved in the work. Uh, specifically, I'm talking about the work of Gurdjieff, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, the fourth way. I became a, a student of self-observation, self-remembering and all these 
all these uh, principles that belong to that school of thought. And I came back to Australia when I was about 33, relocated into the sticks, into the hinterlands of northern New South Wales. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And, and uh, I just did the only thing I could do and meditate. And uh, then I became a, a student of the Vipassana meditation technique. And uh, I went deeper and deeper. And one thing, without any extra details, one thing led to another. I started to teach, somewhat asked, and, and I started to teach, and then yoga schools in Sydney. And, and then finally, in 2013, in 2009, I uh, was tossing what I should do with myself still although I was teaching in yoga studios and so on, I was contemplating leaving the country when I, I remember the day so clearly I got a call from um, someone. Um, his name is missing, is not there, probably because it's, it's, we're not supposed to mention his name, but from Cranbrook School, and Cranbrook is a Sydney school, which is quite a uh, esteemed school, one of the top 50 schools in the country, I think, is this. The, and asking me if I would be interested in um, starting, facilitating a mindfulness program at that school. I, did, I had no idea about the school. I mean, I, was a, I finished school at 15, by the time I was 15, I was hanging out on the streets of Redfern, drinking with like-minded others, you know. <laughs> so it, I didn't know what Cranbrook was. But so I, I said, sure, you know, that, that sounds good. We can trial something there. And, and then uh, four years later, I, I, I was at Cranbrook for four years. I taught students and, and, um, and teachers and you know, the rest of it can fill in some of these details. But then, and then I, and by then I was already also, I'd become a certified breathwork therapist, rebirth. I studied with Leonard Orr. I went to India prior to Cranbrook, just that month, in fact, where I went to study with Leonard Orr, who is, uh, by my account, and I think that count of many, I think he is probably the, the father of modern breathwork. Uh, he's the one who really brought breathwork to the attention and what's possible. In the 1970s, a hippie in Virginia playing with his breath in the bathtub and discovered that if he breathed <laughs> a certain way, he can activate his birth trauma. Anyway, we may talk about that if you wish in a bit. I studied with him. I came, I came back and I was also already a, a certified holistic therapist, counselor, and life coach, and what have you. And um, uh, 2013, the whole thing collapsed. This spiritual bubble that I built for myself in Sydney, I, I kind of became that, that is that guy who was doing that thing in, in Cranbrook. And it opened doors for me with other schools that were calling me to organize pilot programs and very big schools. And, but one day to the next, my, my bubble burst. My 
girlfriend at the time took off with a, another guy and uh, my the school went on holiday and I was given pretty much everything pro bono. And I found myself more or less on the street with about 75 bucks in my pocket at 46 going, hang on a second. How did that happen? You, you, <laughs> you know, like, can, can someone tell me how that happened? Here I am trying to buy my way to heaven. And, but so there I am, 75 bucks in my pocket. It's 2013. What does a man have to do around here in order to maintain some semblance of stability? You know, And this is someone who had been meditating for um, however many, 27 years by then. Daily. I mean, hours. I was obsessive. It was. Wow. So I wasn't a fashion kind of meditator. I was in there bleeding and still like, what do you have to do? <laughs> right. And uh, so there I am 2013 and uh, January, February, March. And I got a, an email from a friend of mine in, uh, in London from the days of Miami. He said, you know, it's my 40th birthday. You got to come. I said, my friend, I wanted to tell him, look, I can't afford it. These were the words I wanted to use. Instead, something in me said to him, how can we make this happen? I don't have the cash right now. How can we make it happen? Hmm, interesting. I'd never. And he said, well, I can talk to Ruth, a rebirther that I had suggested to him in England. He said, I can talk to her and see maybe... You know, I know you like to facilitate groups. Maybe you can organize something here. So talk to her. <laughs> you know, I don't have any money. I'm heartbroken. I have a home. I'm on the street virtually. And he, uh, he did. And sure enough, a workshop. She said, can, we can organize a workshop if he wants to. I said, let's do it. Um, About a week after that, I had reached really lock, rock bottom. The organizer, yes, in three weeks, I was going to leave the country. And I was in Bondi Beach, six o'clock in the morning. Um, I mean, I, 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 my nose was so close to my butt, I, almost, it's, I could almost smell myself. I was that low. I'd reached about as low as I can get. You know? And I'd been trying to do, to do it well my life. I've been trying following all the rules, you know, but instead of getting a piece of that proverbial pie, I kept getting egg in my face. Like, and, and I just thought I, I have had it. And I'm sitting there Bondi beach six o'clock in the morning. And I'm just, and then suddenly I had this thought, these two words, what if I said, what if I no longer cared? just bubbled out of me. Was, what if I no, long, no longer cared? And, and with that, it was like a hook. Something hooked me in that. And what if I no longer cared about anything or anyone? I no longer gave a shit. I no longer cared about myself. I no longer cared about people. I no longer cared about the world. I no longer cared about God. What if I no longer cared? And, and with that, 
I, I felt a, my, a lifting and, and, and suddenly it was backed up. And what if at this moment there was this angelic realm that was looking down and saying, everything is okay, boy, you know, something to that, to that effect. And, and within, within less than a minute, this whole thing took less than 60 seconds. And I, not I, but an alchemical change occurred and where my person went from being absolutely in the dumps 60 seconds before to being in a, in a state of total elation. And I, I knew that experience because now I, I could refer, oh my God, that's then, that was then, and that was then. And it was peaking now or showing itself, so to speak. Mm showing itself to itself for I was that self. Uh, and, and at that moment, suddenly the sand looked like it was pointing, like it was a pointer. The, the people running on the beach looked like they were, everything was a pointer, the sky, the seagulls, the white crest of the waves crashing. Everything looked like it was pointing. And everything was referring backwards. And even my body, I looked at my body and it was referring back. Even my mind that had been tormenting me a minute earlier, suddenly my thoughts seemed so sluggish. And even they were referencing my existence that I myself was unaware of. Every, the world, it's as if, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm telling you as I refer back to the experience. I'm telling you what happened. It's as if the world suddenly said, well, good morning. Finally. It's as if everything knew of this existence except myself. It was like that. And wow. You had a Satori moment. It was a Satori. It was, I, tr I prefer, yeah, let's, let's go with that. But it was not a moment. It just kept, kept expanding like a drop of water rippling and falling, continue this internal falling back into self. Now, I suddenly <laughs> thought, okay. Good. All I cared was that <laughs> I was relieved from my suffering. I didn't care what happened. All I cared was I was relieved and the, the delight of being relieved, the relief of having been relieved momentarily from my suffering. And I, so I got up and, and walked, walked around. I, I, I was no longer heartbroken. I was no longer, I, and, and I spent the rest of that that day in this state and then uh, uh, it didn't last but I but I got what was necessary the understanding that a shift in consciousness is not in time it is in the reorientation of the way we pay attention so it is the in the u-turning of one's awareness now I can speak about it. This was in 2013 because I have since 
learned, I have since, and I've been working towards that anyway. I've been working in the right, in the right direction, and and then and then integrating, practically speaking, this process of U-turning, so that the awareness had been U-turned, and is learning to stabilize in that original primary locality because that's its original condition its original condition is backwards the human the way we pay attention this is a this is a, a this, this is a disturbance of the the right movement of attention we are inside out if you like and i have a theory is why the mind needs to correct what we see we see upside down images because our attention awareness is fixated outside of ourselves that's not its normal or natural um, direction its direction is the reverse so spirituality for me is simply a question of, it is all about reversing the attention awareness and sure enough and then learning to exist that way in this in this original state without being tempted to escape again without to ex without externalizing without going back outside of self again you see the majority of us think that that's the natural setting as i described earlier it's not it's the reverse and when the attention awareness the focusing of the five senses is you turned goodbye a whole other world is unveiled the world of self is unveiled you appear there is an there is the appearance of self. And then now it's just a question of stabilizing, abiding in as that reality. So I left. I did the only thing, any reasonable man in my situation, 46-year-old Lebanese Muslim boy educated in Christian schools, becoming a, a Hindu scholar and a Vipassana Buddhist. <laughs> I did the only thing he could do with, with 75 bucks in his pocket. My ticket was paid for me. I got my little bag and I left and went on a, a travel to do this workshop. And then between 2013, May 2013 and 2019, I traveled to about 20 countries and I did over 100 and 10 workshops and retreats in some 56 cities. Wow. Just step by step by step by step. So, you know, who could have planned that? Who could have planned any of that and the, the experiences? I think of it as my um, market research for what I do today and or what I am, what I what's starting to, to to happen with you know the the online work and all that sort of stuff i got to work with nationalities that were so different from each other from estonia to to barcelona to this to this to this and everyone complaining from the same condition it didn't matter how cold or how warm a people they were they they 
expressed the same condition. So it was like a market research and having the tools of meditation and then rebirthing breathwork specifically, I was able to um, try all these products to see what works, how they work specifically and, and, and under what context they work, how, what kind of application works best so that today I have the answers to this and this is what now I am beginning to set up in terms of my work using what I've learned in order to um, create a kind of container mechanism or container. And essentially I've, I, 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 yeah. So that's where we're at today. I'm here, <laughs> came back to, you know, from running around like a, and all these. And um, yeah, I think that answer, that skin, that goat, answered you, that question in other words you you, you certainly did <laughs> and in what a beautiful story what an incredible journey and in saying that you've brought to memory an experience that i've had you know the the satori experience when the the penny drops so to speak or and i i remember like it was yesterday i was sitting on the train reading Eckhart Tolle um uh his his second book a new earth and there was a passage in there for the life of me. I can't remember what that passage is, but I, I was 21 at the time from memory, 21, maybe 21, 22, going to work, sitting on the train, you know, just, just the average nine to five life doing my thing. Always had something inside of me that was, you know, wanted to be more, you know? And so I was, I was reading all these books. I was reading, you know, Eckhart Tolle, Tony Robbins, and I'd spend, you know, a good 45 minutes of my morning routine reading these books. So I was there sitting on the train and this, this one line, I don't know what it was. I still can't remember. Something happened, something shifted. And in that moment, the penny dropped and I had yeah. my phone in my hand because I was reading the book off my phone and I put my phone down and I looked up, I saw the gray, ugly colored paint <laughs> on Sydney trains, this beigey, ugly colored paint start to look like speckles and they were shining in a way, I looked outside, I, I turned to my right. I still remember exactly where I was sitting at the front of the carriage on the right seat. I looked to the right outside. I saw the coal tracks next to Woolai Creek and the coal had this life about it. It was the same as what you said, which I was, I was shaking my head up and down voraciously when you were saying that. Cause it's like the same thing. The coal had this visceral pulsating feeling to it. The paint on the walls had this beautiful sparkly sensation from it. And then I looked at the people on the train and I, and I felt this peace with their pain and with their happiness. I felt the duality of the experience they're going through. I could feel everyone's feelings, everyone's pain, everyone's suffering, everyone's joy, everyone's happiness, everyone's distractedness, everyone's attentiveness in one moment. And it wasn't taking me over, it was consuming me. I wasn't taken over by it, but I felt all these things simultaneously. And there wasn't, and there's a book that I read that said this perfectly. Nothing was neither in place or out of place. It was just how it was. In that moment for weeks after that, my, my life was this pulsating, right? And it's so funny. I say pulsating. It's almost like the frequencies pulsate up and down the, the wavelengths of light, the wavelengths of, of sound. Everything is frequency as they say. It was as if I was 
riding that wave pulsating up and down. That sounds funny, doesn't it? <laughs> and I went to work that day and all my anxieties of speaking on the phone, uh, appearing a certain way, you know, wearing a certain mask or not wearing a mask, all these things that were trivial at that time vanished. They went away. I remember speaking on the phone to someone and being so engaged and so just an, an ordinary person just on, on, trying to do a sales call and being so engaged in that call and so with that call. And I would do the same things that I always did. You know, I'd go out on the weekend and party. I wonder what it's like being drunk like in this state. And that thought floated through me and I got drunk and I'm just there like being drunk, but not being drunk at the same time. It's this weird experience. It's like everything is outside of you, but in you at the same time, like you said, things are reversed. What you think is inside is now outside. So I went through this whole experience and then of course it went away. <laughs> Eventually it, it, it became uh, either a part of me or it left me. Either way, it doesn't matter because what you said is 100% accurate. The experience that you have becomes a reference point. It becomes something to either that becomes a part of you, like, like your hands or like your eyes or like a memory that gives you a reference to who you are at this point in time. So that memory, that visceral pulsating experience, it may have left me the feeling of presence but my reference of reality and what it could be, my reference of truth, of science, quote unquote, of the reality that we live in became different from that point forward. It was a stake on the moon or on the ground, I should say, of what my reality was. So you remind me of that when you're saying that because everything you said, and it's so strange that everything you said was exactly the same. Obviously, the experiences we had as far as where you were and what you were doing were different. But the explanation was almost exactly the same. Yes, because our shared oneness is, is shared. Where we refer back to, where we revert back to, is not multiplicity. It's like all the numbers returning back to zero. It's zero is our shared reality. All the numbers are, a, a, all the numbers come out of zero. All sound comes out of silence. All vibration comes out of stillness. So what this is supposed to say simply is that source is the source of all of that. Zero is the source of all the numbers. And so when in physical experience, we are referring out, we're moving towards the the numerical numbers, but but what if we reverse back to self? You you you're moving back to the same place. So I know you because we share the same oneness. We we come out of the same reality. We don't come out of that same reality. We are that same reality. There is no coming out of that reality. There is only that reality. So. I really enjoyed what you said because also you're describing a real experience and, and um, because what, you've de what you described is, should be, if it cannot be, be verified by everybody else, it's not true. But what you described is verifiable by every human. 
That's what makes an experience. Well, that's what reality is. Reality is not now, but now is not reality. Truth is not subject to time. It's not truth now and not truth later. Truth is eternally real. Now, when we refer back to the to truth, we're referring back to the eternal real. So in other words, we are transcending the, that which we call time, which is a product of mind. There is no real time. If you, you can't have time without mind. And you can't have mind without time, so to speak. So here we're transcending time because we are transcending mind because that experience goes behind the mind. The mind is a, you might say, the activity of where you went back to or consciousness. So the mind is the activity of consciousness or the creativity. There's nothing creative about the mind because it's just an algorithm based on memory. Right? That's not to say that the mind cannot be creative, but our mind, the way it's used, is hardly anything to write home about, right? So the mind and then further the body or biology, chemistry, and neurology, these are this these are the, this is the activity of consciousness. So imagine this consciousness, whatever we might we don't have to imagine because it is who we are. And then this living is the activity of consciousness and the body is the activity, the instrument of consciousness. So all there is is consciousness. Consciousness in its, in its created form, manifest form, and consciousness in its latent form, just consciousness. So an experience like that takes us outside of the psychology of time. You read something and it, it, it has an opportunity to go beyond. It bypasses your resistances and it activates. And suddenly you have this moment. The athlete calls this moment the zone. Flow. I'm sorry? Flow. Flow. Others call it the flow. And now the, the mystery of course, not to the meditator, but the mystery to the athlete or to those who are trying to access these states or these is, you know, wouldn't it be great if I can just have it on tap? You can. Because all you're doing is you're opening the window to yourself. You're behind, you're behind the person that you think you are. You're not the person. You're behind the person. You're behind the behind the behind, the behind. And it is not an idea. It's in this, in the machination of your reality. It is just what you are, what I am is this. Continuously referring behind itself. But not like that. <laughs> you know, it's this concentric sort of backwards. Continuous falling back behind. So not going with the moment. Keep like coming the big back bang. to the now. Hmm? Like, like the big the, bang. 
like the Big Bang as a concept. Yes, it's a, the Big Bang is an interesting thing because I never really spent any time thinking about it. And I've never really given it any, it's funny, it never has interested me. Any, I don't even need to know anything about it because I, I don't, something in me, not consciously or unconsciously, I don't subscribe to that. It is not, I don't know what it is, the Big Bang. Yeah, I mean, you can think of it in terms of ejaculation. Mm -hmm. That may be, okay, if that's what a Big Bang is, then (laughs) universal ejaculation (laughs) into the the vacuum of space. No, what I I meant is they say the universe is constantly expanding and from continuation of the Big Bang. So when you described the, uh, when you use the body language of like layering and expanding, to me, it was a nice metaphor for the Big Bang and it keeps expanding. And the funny part about that is that often, well, I mean, just from my own perception, I see principles of the universe that relay back to us. And what I mean by that is, I'll explain a story actually, a space-time odyssey by Neil deGrasse Tyson is a TV series, right? And on the very first episode of this TV series, uh, it's obviously, you know, it's a, it's a digitally uh, artifaced video, but he shows us uh, here on earth, he expands out. He goes, here's the solar system, expands out again, keeps going out until you see the cosmos, keeps going out. Keeps going. And eventually you see what's called the multiverse. And when I saw the visual representation of the multiverse, it looked almost identical to human cells. In that moment, as a, I think I was 19 or something, I'm like, hmm, I wonder if we are a reality inside of reality. And what I mean by that is if that looks like cells and it looks like a part of what we would see if we zoomed into our blood vessels, for example, or just any tissue, for example, then are we inside someone's muscles or are we inside someone's cells? Are we a part of someone else's reality on a cellular level? Or is it the inverse? If we zoomed into a blood vessel far enough, we would then see the multiverse. So from that moment, I've always kind of seen parallels between what we see as, uh, you know, when you enter this, the spiritual kind of realm and I use spiritual loosely, but the, when you have Satori moment or a awakening moment, just to use the word as a finger pointing to the moon, as they say, um, not the moon itself, you start to see things as completely different and you realize all the behaviors that you had were redundant. The first thing that I did when I had that moment, I started laughing. It's like, Oh, so all this stuff I've been doing <laughs> for 10, you know, 10, 15 years trying to improve. That was all nothing. And you just laugh. So coming back to it, you know, when you're in that state, you see the ebb and the flow, the warp and the woof of reality for what it is. And that in some way, in some weird way, referencing the Big Bang, hence why it came to me, reminds me of the cosmos and the universe and how they go together in a strange way. And, and, it, depending on your perspective also, um, it can get, if we want to be really, really practical also in terms of applying this 
understanding or this possibility to answer the dilemma of being human, which is unhappiness. Because for me, everything must be contextual. It must apply to a fundamental thing that I'm trying to do in myself. Uh, no matter how fanciful certain theories and principles may be, as I said, I don't know if I said that to you one time, but I said, for me, if, I, if spirituality cannot help me to tie my shoelaces, I've got no time for it. I've got no time for any of that if, if, it, if it is going to be merely a kind of theory or an idea. And so we have these conversations and they must be interesting and interested. We must be interested in them. But at the same time, we need to always refer back to what is it that we are trying to solve? Why, what? You have to be grounded in reality. If we want to call it that, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so what we then are talking about this cosmos and so on and, and what is really happening. And we say, I may or may not know. I may have some really great ideas and theories and suppositions and hypotheses about this. That's great. But who is having these theories? That's what I'm interested in. Who is contemplating the Big Bang? Who is contemplating the cosmos? On whose behalf is this experience happening? Because if we go back to first principles of human, uh, the human condition, see that man, human, woman, we suffer the lack of knowing who we are. That's why on those doors of Delphi in ancient Greece were written, know thyself, you know? Just two simple, profound words, know thyself. And I remember when I first came across these two words, it was, uh, it was, I didn't think it was like, hey, you know, it might be a good idea if you do that. No, I, I saw those words as like, if you know what's good for you, that's what you would do. There was a, there was a big clue in that, know thyself. It didn't say more. If you're a smart guy, that's where you would go. And, and inevitably, I would come to understand, of course, that it is absolute insanity to live without knowing self. And so everything must be put on hold, so to speak, until self is realized or known. Because our fundamental human condition is that we think we are something that we are not. So no matter how clever our ideas and our sciences are, so long they do not ask the question, who is having this experience? Say, so, well, me, yes, but I need to know what that is. Actually and practically, in practice, there is a process of knowing. Knowing is not theoretical. So I think... We can, if we, we don't do that, if we don't bring it back to the fundamental question that we are trying to answer, that forms the basis and the context of human existence. What are we all trying to do? What do we all want? And what do we, we get caught in the, in the, the laws and the structures and this and this. What are these supposed to do? 
What, what are they referring back to? They're referring to the human ex experience. They're referring to the human. And what does this human want? This human wants to be uh, relieved from suffering. That's what she wants? Yes, that's what she wants. That's what he wants, to be relieved from suffering. Okay, great. Does it do that? Because we are getting caught up in, we get caught up in the theories and the, and, and the breaking downs, on, and it could be like that, and we titillate ourselves into further distancing from the fundamental thing that we really need to be looking at. What is my experience right now? What is this unhappiness? What does this word mean? What can, what, what is the remedy, you know? And how does this theory, what role does this theory play in answering that question? It doesn't. <laughs> oh, get rid of it. Mm. That's why I like meditation. That's why I like breath work. That's why I like uh, this simplicity. For me, I hear and I see um, many people, many of us, the majority of us, in fact, as a civilization, so preoccupied with the experience all the while ignoring the experiencer we're just taking it we just take it for granted that we know the experience no you don't i i look around and as i was saying earlier and we see just we're getting caught getting caught up in uh, the pop-ups on the screen and forgetting the actual screen itself, the witness, the, 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 the witnessing reality on, and our suffering is, is due to that forgetting. So this is why first principles for me is all about, well, what is missing in this picture? What is missing? I, I have become, for example, in therapy, and I see this in the various modalities that we do in order to help each other and to help ourselves um, alleviate suffering to the degree that we can, right? And so, but what we've become is we've become experts in issues. And as an astrologer, as you know, I'm an astrologer. And so that gives me a very interesting vantage point because astrology is, uh, you know, there's the, the natal chart, what is called the natal chart, that circle that a, an astrologer looks at when he's reading your chart. Uh, it's divided into 12 departments. The circle is divided into 12 departments. And those, it's essentially the circle is space. And then by dividing it, we give it time. Now there are 12, we give it the impression of movement, so to speak, one, 12 departments. And then we attribute to these 12 departments different, what we know about the human experience. So for example, the one to 12, the first one is myself. The second one is my stability, my security, my finance, my values. The third one is my mind, my intellect, my communication, the fourth house or fourth department is my childhood, my emotional IQ or EQ, whatever you want to call it. The fifth house is creativity. The sixth is health. It's what a, you, you see coaches have some kind of uh, iterations of the same thing. But astrology has 12 human departments. And 
what I what I really like about this is that it condenses all the possible psychological issues <laughs> that the human can deal with. You'll be here for lifetimes if you have to deal just with issues, issues with this, 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 this. What astrology, at least my brand of astrology and the way I practice it using this that I'm describing, it categorizes all the possible issues into just 12 departments. So now instead of having to deal with the myriad of possible issues, psychological complexes, we're only dealing with 12 issues. But even so, you have to ask those questions, to ask this question. To whom do these 12 departments apply? This natal chart, which encompasses this particular human's experience, is divided into 12 living departments. To whom do these departments apply? Answer is to me. How many of me is there? One. Okay. So a thousand issues that I can deal with to try to help myself to become happy, to have, you know, have the experience that I'm supposed to be apparently entitled to. Or I can deal with the 12 categories, become a master. And I have actually my program, The Living Living mastery is about living mastery in these 12 departments. That's a step that's more doable. <laughs> Deal with 12 instead of dealing with a thousand issues as they pop up, like a thousand holes in a bucket. You fix one, another one, no end to it. You need lifetimes to, to, to become a perfected human on that in this way. Or 12, you can become masterful. But it's still 12 categories that you need to juggle, 12. But how many, these 12 departments, how many do they refer to? Only one, the person. Easier to deal with the person than to deal with 12 departments, finance, security, this, 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 relationships. Deal with the person instead of 12 departments or deal with 12 departments instead of 1,000 issues. So the question is, to whom do these 12 human departments refer to? To whom do they apply to? The answer is to me. And the fundamental question, for example, like Ramana Maharshi, the great saint in, in India, and he was not around anymore, but the, the saint of Arunanchala, incredible human, says, to whom do these... To, the, to these questions arise? And the answer is to me. And he says, and who are you? Find out just that one thing. Just that one thing is all you have to do. Find out who you are. And he will have, he will have people come to him and they say, I'm dealing, I have, I have trauma from, he says, to whom is having this trauma? And he says, I am, he says, and who are you? That's the answer. And then someone is having problems with money. Someone says, and whom, to whom, to me, who are you? That was his antidote to suffering. Find out who you are. That's the first solution. That's the ultimate, the knowledge of self. Know thyself. That must be kept in mind for the human if he, she truly is interested in freedom. Because Money will not give freedom. Success will not give freedom. 
Um, fame will not give freedom. Um, likeability will not give freedom. Um, success, achievement, Elon Musk, yes, Ma the Musk becoming, that will not give freedom. Going to Mars will not give freedom. Extraterrestrial, becoming part of that exoplanet will not give freedom. Nice, don't misunderstand me. There are many iterations of a dream you can have, many layers, and dream within a dream within. Wonderful. That is, what about the dreamer? And so that's the one question now we are, I have seen in my 30-something years interest in um, the field of what I now understand the spiritual realization or self-realization. Um, I have seen that this conversation is now within the greater conversation of yoga and meditation. There is now a deeper conversation which is being had by a few. And that is very exciting. And that is the, the conversation of self. Now, know thyself. We're coming back to the intricacies of that which will relieve of us from suffering. And the suffering is caused by lack of self-knowing. I don't know myself as I really am, not as a body, not biology, chemistry, neurology, as I put it. But beyond biology, beyond chemistry, beyond neurology, there is the self. There is a deeper dimension. And it is not a, a, it doesn't have form. The issue is that when we think of self, it's just we, we, we think by self, we mean body-mind relationship. No. What is meant by self is not that. When Socrates or Aristotle, whoever it was, wrote, know thyself, he wasn't saying know your body type. He wasn't saying know your 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 psychological profile he wasn't saying no those things have their their place of course it's not a not a bad idea at all but he's saying know thyself with a capital s but we take it as a given we we, we don't spend enough time anymore being contemplative that the lost art of contemplation is what is, in my perspective, is making a comeback. It must make a comeback because you cannot know self without being contemplative, without entering into the heart of matter with the mind. Right now, the mind of man, woman, has been reduced to addressing survival issues. Why? Because the mind is a product of survival. And so it needs to be that way. But this creation of mind, this incredible mind that can cause the field of all potentiality, what religion calls God, to vibrate a single thought as an electrical charge that's like a lightning striking in the midnight sky. It causes the whole field to vibrate. That's the power of the mind, a conscious mind. 
it can cause a, 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 you know, the wave function to collapse, collapsing the wave function, turning it from wave to particle in order for it to become physical in this dimension. So we got this mind, and what is it doing? Being, being egoically in service of, in service of survival has been reduced to addressing survival issues. It's not designed for that. The mind, and therefore the mind of man, is dull. It's bored. And that's really one of the biggest issues that the human is dealing with as part of his, her human condition of ignorance, not knowing self. That's why we preoccupy our time with addressing theories like the Big Bang and this. And I'm not saying, but I, I like, I just, Big Bang, I, I haven't been interested in it, but that doesn't mean I haven't been interested in, uh, am I a reality? I am a reality existing in my own reality. And so are you, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, okay, we can wonderful elaborate and make wonderful commentaries on the nature of creation and evolution. Wow. We got to that point where we can do that. But we must not do that without having one foot in reality. We must not lose sight of ourselves. We have already, and consequently we suffer, and we create a civilization of war, and then everybody wants to fix the world. We go, no, the world is a projection. The world is a manifest reality of our existing condition caused by separation from self. So know thyself. It has to be demystified. The self has to be understood. It's not the self of the body. It's not the self of biology, chemistry, emotions, neurology, mind. When, when the greats, the masters of happiness, what I call instead of the masters of wisdom or the masters of spirituality, I just call them the masters of happiness. Because that's what they were. They were happy. In other words, relieved from the tension of continuous suffering that, that I experienced, that the majority of people are in. It's like they are stretched away from self, like an elastic band. The further they stretch away from themselves in interest in issues and psychological complexes and outer solutions, the further they stretch and the further the tension, the greater the tension. The degree of separation equals the degree of suffering to me. That's what hell is. Hell, the formula for hell is the degree to which you become separate from yourself. The gap, that's the gap of hell, suffering. Return to self and then talk to me about hell. You experienced it on the train. You experience, I mean, I experienced it on the beach and consequently have learned to stay in close proximity to that state, learning, habituating myself to try to speak out of that state without losing my mother's hand. I'm not leaving. No, you, you can do it alone. But Sam, you, I don't want to do it alone. Like holding the hand of the divine. And then you can let go and stay and your own divine, divine recognition and speak from that and so on and so forth. That speaks to you directly. 
in terms of showing you in actual time you're being relieved from tension, like you're being relieved from duty. You're being relieved. How do you know? Because there it is, and there it is, and there it is. You're not saying, I have been really, I'm, I'm happy now. You're just saying, I'm no longer unhappy. Because happiness is your original nature that we have in early childhood turned into a achievement. Our original state has been turned into an achievement. So happiness has been turned into something that you, you accomplish or you realize in space and time. No, happiness is what you are already by virtue of your divine reality, by virtue of being a, by being self. Not self in a body, not self in a mind, self, self, the self that Socrates was referring to when he said, know thyself. In other words, the, know thyself. Know thyself as an application, as a verb, not theoretically. So for me, when I was in Miami and about to return to Australia, I spent three months in New Orleans. And uh, I was yet in another pit of darkness. And I spent this time just basically in a contemplative state. I can't even, I don't even, I look, if I look back at some of the things that were written in this time, I don't understand them. Three months of virtually not leaving that room because I was in the, being destroyed inwardly. And know thyself was what was happening. And I put it to myself. If that is the solution to all my misery, what is the application? What is the applicable process? Thought, what does it know? What does it mean to know myself? Thought, well, if I want to know something, what do I do? Thought, if I want to know a music, I give it my attention. And by giving it my attention, music is known to the degree to which I'm giving my music the attention. If I want to know a painting, I give it attention. If I want to know a book I'm reading, I give it attention. So that's how I get to know knowledge is a byproduct of giving my attention to something. If you want to know what I'm saying right now, you have to give me your attention. And if I really want you to know, then I have to try to appeal to your sensibility so you can give me your attention. That's what advertising world is all about. Hey, hey, give me your attention. Winning attention. Why is that? Because attention is the middleman or woman between spirit and matter between God and the manifest world. If you don't give attention, you know. So I thought, so that means I know two things. I know that I need to know in order to have relief from suffering. I need to know. And the second thing, 
I know what needs to be known. I know the process and I know what needs to be known. The process is called know. And the thing that I need to know is self. Well, that's pretty easy. How do I know? By giving attention. What do I have to give my attention to? Self. Okay, where do I start? With myself. So what, I just give my attention to my body? Yes. Oh, well, that's what meditation is. Good. Shut up and do it then. Sit down. And so for three months, I sat across my legs in my suffering and knowing my body, because that's myself. That's where I had to start. I start with the known, not with the unknown. I started with what? My body in space and time. So how do I get to know it? Feel it. So I started to just inwardly feel my body, sense my body, the vibrations. And I discovered that the body, which appears to be physical on the outside, is actually non-physical on the inside. It's energy. It's so, so obvious. If you feel your knee right now, wherever you are, you're sitting, or let's say your left hand, left hand looks solid on the outside, right? The palm of the left hand. But if you stay with the palm of the left hand, you realize, oh, no, it's actually tingling. It's just vibrational field on the inside. And the whole body, what appears to be rigid and solid on the outside, is actually just a vibrational field of energy on the inside, as you are now experiencing. Oh, okay. So I'm knowing myself, but that's not enough. That, that actually is already... Oh, relieving something and now stay with the energy field. And I did. I continued to stay in the energy field of the body to the best of my ability. It was painful at first in some areas because there were knots of energy from my past. But then they released, released, and released. And I, I learned now to keep awareness or to keep company with the energy field instead of the physical field. So now, oh, is that what what they mean by your energy body? That's easy. That's easy. I'm connected. Hey, I'm connected with my energy body, you know. Big deal. That's kindergarten. Everybody needs to now become connected with their energy form. Looking out, feeling in. I'm looking out, but I'm feeling in. I'm home. I don't take my scuba gear out and then go diving. I stay in my scuba gear. I'm inside my my body having this. I don't need to come out of my body to have this conversation. And, And how do I know I'm in my body? I can feel the energy field of the body. Okay, that's good. So I know that. But it doesn't stop there. What else is there in this experience? There's the thinking mind. Okay, but at some point, you're, you ask, well, but what is aware of this thinking which is coming and going? And this energy which is fluxing, continuous flux. What is aware of this? Which just so happens to be unchanging. There is an unchanging field. Behind my thoughts that come and go, my feelings of pain that come and go, my sensorial field of my body, which comes and goes. Behind that, there is this thing which is not going away. Awareness, my, my reality, or the I am, the I, the first, which has been with me since I was a child. It hasn't changed. My body has changed. 
my thoughts have come and gone. They've become more elaborate and, and ridiculous. But what's behind this has no home. Might that be what Aristotle was talking about or Socrates was talking about? I think it's Socrates when he said, know thyself. Was he talking about that deeper self? Was he talking about that deeper self? And, and, and so I was in that for almost three months in, in the French quarters in New Orleans. And finally, I just had enough. I, I just... So we really need to have a clear understanding that when we, when, when we say to each other, particularly our generations now, which is really hip to the spiritual conversation, it needs to be understood that when we talk about self, we're not talking about the body. We're not talking about the mind. We're not talking about chemistry, biology, or neurology. That's for me what it is. There is a deeper self behind that. All this, the body, the mind, and the emotions are consolidated in this deeper reality. Unchanging reality is not weird. And that's what you fell into when you're on the train. You went behind biology, chemistry, neurology. And, and, and now it's a question of remaining as that self, the I am. So when Ramana Maharshi, Nisargadatta, all these Vedanta greats and Advaita say, who are you? Find out who you are. But I am this body. Who's knowing the body? But it's the body that knows the body. No, the body is not knowing the body. Something is knowing the body because you're not always knowing the body. And yet something remains. You go to sleep at night, something remains. Awareness is still there. The body wakes up in the morning, but awareness doesn't go to sleep. It does so therefore it doesn't need to go to go. Yeah, but, it, but we don't recognize it because it doesn't have shape. It doesn't have a smell. Because we're used to recognizing things with the five physical senses that have a form. But how do you recognize your formless reality? So there has to be a U-turning of attention. So this attention that knows things, and this is the process. Wonderful. When I give something attention, my attention guides my five senses. So my five senses go to it like these five tentacles. And then information, according to each of these senses, is passed back to the person, the mind. The mind, according to its conditioning, it says, I like that, but I don't like that. That's what that is. That's not what that. It dismisses this and accepts what is what it is predisposed to or prejudiced to. And that's what we call reality. But now, imagine this attention, which got five senses, like five tentacles. What happens to it if you turn it around? You take it from its fixation on objects, turn it around to look at the self. The first encounter, everyone is looking for first encounter with aliens. That's not what first encounter means. The first encounter is encounter with the self. First contact is with the body, the physical body. Oh, keep the five senses on the body. The feeling, looking out, feeling, oh, it has tinglings. Oh, tinglings, vibrations. The whole body is an energy field. Okay, the five senses have you turned. From there looking out, now looking in. And guess what happens to the five senses as they U-turn? 
that which was five, as you reverse or inverse or you turn the attention, as it comes in, the five undergo a process, a kind of alchemical process where they fuse and they become one. A single, super extraordinary sensorial organ which encompasses the entirety of the body. And I, I understood, oh my God, that's what they call the third eye. The third eye is the consolidation of the five senses into the one. Oh, that which was five, that which it divides into five according to the five holes, as it goes out, eyes, nose, you know, sending back information to the, this is a survival strategy. Now it's your turn. It starts to tuck back in and it closes and it becomes singular, extraordinary audio organ, which is capable of perceiving the subtle reality of awareness. In other words, the light of awareness expressing through the five lenses, as it's U-turned, its light is now turned back on itself and it stands revealed. It goes, hi, that's the first contact with the I am. And that's the first experience that our ancestors had when they first developed, when they first, when our, the first man, the first woman, some hundreds of thousands of years ago, realized out of an impulse of separation, oh my God, I am not you. Until that moment, our ancestors existed like the animal. They only had the potential of mind. 16 billion years of development had given them the potential of mind, right? And so suddenly at some moment, there was this flowering of this potential and the first man experienced separation. And he stood there and went, oh, I am, I, I, you know? I, and you hear the baby. What, what, is, what is in the belly and and the birth journey and then the, the childhood. This is a, a replaying of our evolutionary design. We're acting it out in, in fast time. And you see babies when they first look and suddenly they, at some moment we realize I am not you, I'm not my mother. And then the baby starts to go, ah, ah, you, you're it. I'm not an idiot, I've seen it. I did it, you did it, ah, ah, ah. And suddenly the ah becomes, I am me. I am me, this body, and this is mine. That's the birth of the person, the psychological self. That's not the self that Socrates says no. He's, not ref He's saying the self prior to that. He's saying, what were you before you knew you were separate, but now you are an adult in that knowing? Now you're, and so why is this important? Why is this important? Because when in the biblical traditions, they talk about the fall, that's what they're talking about. The kingdom of heaven is the oneness. 
it's within. God is within. There's no outer thing you know, because there is no outer reality. There's only the reality which is appearing as a projection and the screen of my awareness. So this five that was outward going now comes back inward. And the information that was coming from outside about the world is now replaced by information about the self. So all we've done is we've U-turned the, the mechanism of knowing, the attention awareness. First, it was directed outside and it was knowing the world. Now we've turned it around. Now it's directed inside and it's knowing the self. The first contact is with the body. It knows the body, but that's not it because it keeps going backwards until it reaches awareness. The I am, the first experience, but that's not it either. The I am is a psychological concept. There is no I am. All there is is just universal awareness, our shared oneness. There's no more Basam, there's no more Luke, there is just still, all there is is the still being, the still thought-free reality which is being perceived by the body. And the body itself is perceived by it. The body perceives. So there is the sensorial experience of the body, which itself is being known by something behind it, which doesn't have form. You can't see with five, but you can certainly discern with one. When the five armies come back, they consolidate into one, indestructible. Why is this important? Because it's this that will, the truth that will set us free. It's not the truth of I know more and more about my issues and I know more about my psychological complexes and I know more and more and more theory and knowledge and information that's not helping us. In fact, it's turning us into mad goats. And so the practical significance of this, it may, what we're talking about may only be, um, readily, let's say, available to some few, that's the conversation which I have seen over the past at least three years becoming more popular. People talking about the non-dual path, people talking about Vedanta Advaita. Nobody had heard of this. The majority of people had not heard of the non-dual path until three, four years ago right? Maybe they have, but I mean, very few. But now people are, when you say to them, you're, uh, you're not the body. They are, uh, it's not, so weird, not such a weird thing. They still cannot grasp because the machinations of what this means has not yet been really, it's not hit the street running yet. But the time has come. 
out of the cave, onto the street, and into the office and the kitchen of everyday life. The age of the mystic has arrived. The, the era of the mentor is upon us. So this is what this is all about for me. You know, apart from it being fun, of course. Finally, I'm relieved from my tension. I can have some fun being in my with my psychological complexes. Irony, ironically, you no longer want to change yourself. You say it's okay for me. No, it's okay. <laughs> I'm fucked up. That's what I like it. That is because I am no longer what is fucked up. The mind has problems, the body has problems, it has karma. I don't. The self that Socrates is saying, no, it doesn't have problems. Self-consciousness, yourself, myself, it doesn't have karma. It doesn't have problems. My mind has a problem with everything, but I don't have a problem with anything. How about that? And that distinction needs to be made before we arrive at this liberation. The distinguishing that I am not my mind. What is seeing it? It's so obvious when, it, when, it's, when it's clarified. You're thinking, right? Your thoughts are coming and going? Yeah. What is seeing? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, because you're looking at someone trying to find a person. No, it's no person. All there is is the seeing of that which comes and goes. The sky doesn't disappear just because the lightning is gone. The sky, the lightning comes and goes, right? But the sky doesn't disappear? No. The, the clouds come and go, but the sky is there. And, and there is not even a sky. And that's the same with self. The self is there. Thoughts come and go. Lightning, electrical charges. But self mm. remains. Awareness. Sky, awareness, same word. Sky, awareness. Clouds, moods, in other words, come and go. But awareness doesn't get touched. It's a scream, it's, but it doesn't exist either. The sky does not exist. There is no sky. Mm. And similarly, there's self. But you can't call it, we call it sky, we call it self, but there is but space. But it is an active, alive space. It's not empty space. In other words, I'm no one, but that doesn't mean there is no intelligence or there's no power or there is no, on the contrary. And in Sanskrit, they describe the characteristics of this reality as sat-chit-ananda or, or being consciousness bliss. It's made of these things. So bliss and happiness, you either experience it now or you never will because you cannot experience it tomorrow. You can only, you have only access to happiness now. <laughs> Such a simple thing and self-evident, but we have been conditioned since early childhood to bond with biology. Like a, like a tiger that learns to bond with a duck and thinks it's a duck, you know, something in early childhood. We have been bonding with biology, chemistry, feelings, and neurology, minds since infancy. And now we think we are biology. Like a, a driver enters a car and he thinks, she thinks, 
he is a Vols, Volkswagen or a, or a BMW. No, you're not. You're the human. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> so we may ask now, we might say, well, how, what do I start with this? How do I get started? You know, like, because it, it's okay. That's fine. It's interesting. Where do I start? How do I? How does my journey to self-realization begin? That's why today I call myself a self-realization coach. It took me all these years to understand that that's actually what I do. Where do I start? And we start with this conversation first. Start with this conversation. You are either, if you find yourself open to this conversation, then that's a, a signature that you're ready to, to go into this conversation, into this journey of, of beginning to disassociate with the body. In other words, biology, mind, and, uh, and neurology. And the first thing, of course, is the easiest thing is to recognize everybody more or less knows now there is this voice in the head. <laughs> and that, but you're not the voice. So start to catch this narrative. You look at a light and you hear the voice tell you, oh, I like that. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, look at that dickhead. Oh, look at that girl. Oh, look at this. Look at this. And, and she should not have said that. And he didn't say that. This narrative, this I call it the social commentary that the mind is, the voice is continuously making. When you can see that, good. Well done. Well done. Keep seeing that. Because the more you see that, it means something has entered into the moment. Something of consciousness has entered before you were just coupling. Coupling, copulating, and creating with the mind. Coupling, copulating, and creating. Your shit reality. Your life of quiet desperation. I'm not judging anyone, believe me. <laughs> I am like people. Say, I have been a miserable sod. So it's not like I'm speaking from some high, high, you know, chair. But enough is enough at some point. And you have to come to terms with the fact that reality doesn't cause your suffering. It is the voice in the head and the commentary that it is making about reality what we call interpretation look looked at me like that and that means that oh look he doesn't like you he's saying that he's saying that who are you like well i didn't think that did you think that i mean did i think that no there was a thought that and i saw it i heard it and then but i've taken it on board as mine but it's not my arm it's not like i was born with it it's learned it's not like an appendage I have to amputate. I just have to see the, the imposter, the middleman that I've been doing business through. I don't need a middleman. I don't need a mind. The fun only starts when the mind stops, my friend. The bliss, every cell in the body is, is dancing with joy. The party starts when the mind shuts up. Mm. And the mind only shuts up when you recognize the mind as not I, 
not I. The body, not I. I'm looking at my body and I'm looking at my microphone. What is the difference? They're both appearing in my consciousness. And I'm looking at you now. I know I'm not you. I know I'm not my microphone. I look at my body and say, oh, that's me. No, it's not. <laughs> that is an appearance. It's a perceivable. You're a perceivable. My computer is perceivable. My microphone is perceivable. My itching is perceivable. The sensation, the body is perceivable. All there is is perceivables, pop-ups on my screen of consciousness. And when I recognize that which is perceiving and stay as the perceiving reality and not descending to the perceived, don't go to the perceived thinking, perceived emotions, perceived this, perceived this, perceived. Stay as the perceiver, the purveyor of experience the eye of the storm around which the storm is happening, the perceivable. I become the center, the eye. Stay as the eye, looking at it. And you're looking, you're looking at the eye. You can no longer, you've heard the saying, everywhere I look, I see God. That's what it means. Not so, not so far away. It is the reality. And it's amazing that some shit kicker from the streets of Marigville can say that. It, how is that possible? Because it's there. Because it's there. Everywhere I look, I see I. I, I, I. Because I'm in my own looking. Of course, I had to stabilize in that reality to some degree before I could, or before permission to be able to say that could without embarrassment or without shame, because that's the truth. So what do I do? First, the conversation. And start then to become aware, cognizant. Dare to be cognizant of the internal voice. Of course, there has to be some presence for this to happen. Without presence, good luck. We're just in mechanical sleeping. But the wonderful thing is that the collective energy, the human has arrived at a time of such evolution, in spite of the appearances, the madness on the street, where, where this becomes possible. You know, people are propping up a few are lights are turning on. Where people are walking while looking at themselves, not the body. Everywhere they're looking, they are in their own looking. And what is the result? Freaking incredible. Better than magic of childhood. Better than childhood. You remember childhood? How good it was? Playing and you're so absorbed. Imagine being like that but as an adult. It's possible. Not only possible, inevitable. It's inevitable. Otherwise, the human will not continue to exist. That's the challenge right now. It's mm. not an idea. It's not for fun. It's not for being egoically unique or special. This happens or the human perishes. 
But it doesn't matter, the human perishes. Because what we think, what perishes is the, is, is the biology, chemistry, and, and, and neurology. But what happens to space if you get rid of the walls? You let's say you destroy this room. What happens to the space? Still exists. Nothing, nothing happens. Nothing happened to it anyway. The, do the walls define the space? No. Space is, you knock these walls, they, the walls go after a billion years. They may exist, but they still do not define it. The walls are gone. Space is, not, nothing happened to it. It's just still there. It hasn't been even touched by walls. Space, sky, awareness, self, happiness, same word. God, same word. What happens to God if you destroy the body? What can happen? Nothing. So I am not a person. Person is the, like a holographic byproduct of three things. Biology, type, environment in which the biology was born. Lebanon, Australia, and experience. These three factors, the type of me, which it determines the predisposition, the tendencies, the karma of this body, plus the environment in which this body was born, and the experiences within this environment, the interaction, interplay between these three equals basam, I am. But it is a figment of the interplay between biology, environment, and there is no Bassam. It is just a memory. When we get rid of Bassam, what's left? An opening through which light shines through. How can you not want that? It's like... Sounds like bliss. And, and, and how can it not be a compelling value proposition? Not only an answer to our problem, but also how can you not want to know your reality, know thyself? Incredible two words. This guy must have been a genius to just... Well, the ironic thing is that if a social psychologist read those words, he would say, oh, know thyself. So therefore know the human biases no confirmation bias, know your heuristics, know how you distort the world in ways that make it not viewed from reality. You ask someone who is in your line of work and they would say what you're, what you're saying. And what we see is that, you know, if we look at the metaphor of original sin in Genesis, right, talks about how humans were pure, and we were tempted by this outside, external, visceral, shining, glistening thing. And we took it, right? And that's where sin entered us. And just metaphorically speaking, sin being what we would perceive right now, or what I might assume you mean by the ego, you know, about how we view these externalities as us. Or, you know, I am my car, I am my house, I am my financial status, the attachment of uh, virtues outside of us. Now, 
Carl Jung once said that in order, if you look at humanity, or if you look at people, he didn't say humanity, he said people, but I'm saying humanity, and you reverse engineer what, you know, the, the outcome we're in right now, you can find the motives of the society or the person. You know, if I'm depressed or if I'm, you know, I, I have a tendency for a certain behavior, if you look at the behavior, you can reverse engineer the motive, right? So my my question or my curiosity lies in if this is who we are and we aren't the things of the ego, quote unquote, then why has humanity led to this point? Now you might say, well, it's like a disease. We're, we're sickened with it. You know, we, it's part of the human condition. So if it is a part of the human condition and if that is us, then should we learn to live with this condition as in, okay, uh, you know, 99% of the people who aren't quote unquote enlightened in the world have biases, they have attachments, they have ego, they have all these different things. So wouldn't the direction then be to learn to live with that part of being and find ways to adapt around it as opposed to starting a new earth, as Eckhart Tolle would say? What are your thoughts? We've been doing that. We, we've tried that to live with our madness and to live, in fact, not only to live, but arguably there is an energy which seeks to propagate it, which is the same energy that has allowed us to develop a mind. Can I um, just add something there quickly? Please. So I'm not, you know, I'm not questioning that we, we haven't had to live with it but rather that we have to live with it, if that makes sense. And, you know, the metaphor, the, the image of the snake in its tail, right, is kind of an analogy of how humanity might end because of this thing we have. And Re so go for it, go for it. Yeah. Winter will end and it's replaced by a different season. So it's tempting to, to think that we are doing life but when summer comes eh, all the coats of winter are discarded and, and people put their swimming cozies and 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 they go swimming and we start to sell products that are relative to that season the season consciousness the collective consciousness is also seasonal and they have typically been called for example all the Greeks have, have their the four ages, and the, the Hindus they call them the, the yugas. And so the there is the, the iron age, there's the bronze age, there's the silver age, and then there is the golden age. These refer to um, the seasons of consciousness. And so when we look at ourselves, it's tempting to make a conclusion about who we are in terms of our behavior according to some kind of season that we are in. This doesn't represent, first of all, none of this represents our reality, the fundamental reality that we were talking about before. None of it. But the seasons themselves dictate the quality of 
intelligence, the collective quality, and also the developments, and also the industries, and also the discoveries. For example, in the Iron Age, you're not going to make Silver Age conclusions or Silver Age discoveries, not unless you are within yourself existing in the Golden Age. Within, in other words, a master. So, in this current age, in this current age, as we, we, let's say, some say we are moving out of the, the Bronze Age, moving into the Silver Age, the Age of Mind. And our intelligence is peaking, our consciousness. It starts off with a few shoots who start to flower. And so it's seasonal. So it's not a question, do we learn to live with ourselves as we are? We, ha we, we have to learn to live with ourselves as we are in winter, but we then have to acclimatize to summer and autumn and spring. It is this continuous recycling of the terrain. We ourselves remain unaffected. What I mean by ourselves, I mean self remains unaffected. Consciousness, the screen. You show different movies on the screen, but the screen itself remains unaffected. So here we're speaking philosophically about this kind of thing. Practically speaking, what do we do? Practically speaking, the season, the dawning, advancing season is calling us into greater realizations, is calling us into a kind of friction of action. It's not like, oh, we are now deciding to do this and that. No, you and I don't decide nothing. <laughs> the, the leaders decide nothing. There is a greater intelligence which is orchestrating. In this case, we're likening it to the season of winter or the season of autumn or the season of, we talk about seasons of consciousness, greater or lesser qualities of consciousness. Our being is determined by our consciousness, not the other way around. Our being doesn't determine our consciousness. The, the quality of our consciousness determines the quality of our being, which must include how we think, how we feel, how we act. And some say, but if such seasons of golden age existed in history, why can't we see them now? Imagine you are living in the iron age. And you still don't even know your technology is hammer and, and you know, whatever in Iron Age technologies were available. How are you going to recognize Bronze Age products? Bronze is energy conductor. So when we talk about the Bronze Age, we're talking about the energy age. When we talk about the Silver Age, we're talking about the energy of mind, mercury. When we talk about the Golden Age, we're talking about the energy of light or consciousness. So, but the technology of the bronze, of, of the iron age, you're still learning how to use metals and, and you see a computer which, is, which runs on energy. You're not going to recognize that technology. You don't even know what you're looking at. Now imagine for us with, where the, there is the age of mind, which is dawning, the silver age or the tetra yuga. The, in, the Hindus have their own yugas or their own seasons, like similar. 
that civilization artifacts from the golden age exist right here in front of you now, right here in front of you and me, but you cannot, we cannot recognize that technology because it doesn't, we, we can't, we don't know what we're looking at because if even if imagine how different a computer is to say a hammer for the gold, for, for the bronze, for the Iron Age. It wouldn't even know a bit what it does, right? If you've never heard of a computer. So how am I going to recognize an, something which, a technology which belongs to the Silver Age, which is the age of mind or the Golden Age, age of consciousness? I'm not going to recognize the architecture, art. I won't recognize it. It's right in front of me in this room artifacts belonging to antiquity, thousands and thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of years of, are right in front of me and I cannot see them. That's a fact. It's not an idea. So it's the seasons, the dawning, the greater power, the one that moves through all things that calls the shots. There is an orchestration here. There is a design. It's a seasonal cyclic reality. And now as we progress towards the Silver Age, we probably, you know, this is by some accounts in 70 years is, but we're already some of, and the, the age of mind, the Silver Age is conscious, conscious creation through conscious thought. The, the time is, a, in other words, things don't take time to manifest. Imagine pop-ups just with your mind the great possibility, not because you've become something extraordinary, but because winter is gone and the sun has come and there's the warmth. It's part of the created or manifesting consciousness spectrum. A different color appears, different light. So how do we, we say we, are, we, we learn to put two and two together in terms of our mind. We learn to think a little bit and we start to go, well, how do I fix this problem? And we don't fix nothing. If we're contemplating these ideas, it's because something greater than us is calling us to contemplate, right? And so what is the first thing that, if that's the case, then I, I get to a point in my own evolution where, where I go, wow, okay, well, maybe I should get interested in this something that calls the shots, where do I find it? Is it outside? No, it's inside. So I can connect with it? Yes. Again, that's the self that Socrates talked about. Know thyself, meaning know the guy, the big dude, the big dudes who is behind the tide. The that pulsations the, of the universe. The? The pulsations of the universe. The X factor that causes the universe to pulse. Mm. Yeah. That causes, uh, it's the electricity in the fridge and the toaster. <laughs> and That's a good the, way the to microwave. Put it. Imagine the toaster and the, and the fridge have a fight one day. Huh. I can toast bread. What can you do? <laughs> That's our madness, like something similar to that. Mm. But without the electricity. Both of them are redundant, unnullified. So we must know the, electric the electricity within. And I don't mean energy. Here I'm just using this as a metaphor. 
But there's a lot, in other words, in short for us, I suppose, in this conversation, we might say, well, there's a lot to be excited about. And the direction to go in is now for us to become interested in the witness, in the self. But the self is not a body or those bias, psychological biases that you so beautifully brought into that conversation. It, 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 yes, but it doesn't occur to me to think of self that way because it's so far, so far removed from the truth. The self is not... The self is not, the small self is conditioned by these prejudices and these determinations, but the real self has no condition. It's unconditioned. It's pristine. And you have access to it because you are it. But you identify as the conditioned part that the page that was written on and not the rest of the book, which is open. And it is in your own looking. And unless technically the human learns to turn his eye, her eye backwards, nothing's going to happen. So we need to chuck a Yui. Need to chuck a Yui. Beautiful. <laughs> unless we chuck an awareness Yui, you can. That's why I am ever grateful for the Gurdjieff work, which set the foundation for where. I would go with that because it was very practical work. It's very, we spend years just observing the sensation in the left hand, then the right hand, and then the right foot, left foot, paying a dollar to the counter, self-observation, self-remembering. It is really the, and that developed or cultivated the ability to inwardly perceive it caused this outwardly fixated attention awareness since childhood, since we were trained to focus our awareness on the outside to come back. So it relieved the attention fixation, allowing the self, because when we talk about attention and awareness, we're talking about the self, which is trapped outside of self. Now, we relieve it and it begins to chuck a yui. It begins to. <laughs> and for those who don't know, who aren't in Australia, chuck a yui means making a U turn. That's all <laughs> yeah. it simply oh, yeah, is. Yeah, we forget. Turning, turning back around and heading in the other direction. Um, but uh, I think we should wrap on that point because we're hitting that close to seven mark. Um, any, any final thoughts? Would you like to leave where people can find you or? Leave a message, perhaps. You can find me online these days. I don't do uh, my work, one-on-one -on -one private work. I don't do much of anymore, given time constraints. But you can find me online if any of this, um, you know, tickles your fancy. I'm a, as you know, a rebirther, a breathwork therapist. I certify breathworkers and all that sort of stuff, meditation. I have a program, it's a 12 months program that I guide people uh, on. And uh, what's unique about this program is that it, uh, it, it, it focuses on 21 day challenges as the mode of learning. And so it's living mastery and 20, uh, so it has four 21 day challenges 
and um, meditation challenge, breathwork challenge, gratitude challenge, positivity challenge. And within these four challenges, monthly, we meet four times. And I'll add that to the show notes as well. If you flip me to the link, yeah. I'll put it in the description here and people can, can join. And so if this is interesting, then as you said, shoot a link or whatever you said, <laughs> get in touch. What do I want to say? I want to say this. The, the human is beautiful only when he can feel his or she can feel her own beauty. Our nature is beautiful to feel. Not because theoretically we're saying it's a good idea. We're saying that in learning to look out and feel in, you're feeling into your beauty and therefore you just feel the beauty and the joy. It's a, a sensed reality. That's what I want to say. Within self is beauty, is beautiful. I really encourage you to look inward. You're going to find something very beautiful. It's going to be in light of that beauty, the existential crisis disappears. Because behind our survival issues, living issues, is an identity issue. We don't know who we are anymore. And that lack of knowing has produced an existential crisis. You don't fix an existential crisis by dealing with the problems of money, this, this. You fix the crisis by fixing the identity problem. That's what happened with me. Beautiful. Well, thank you for joining. So and that's, yeah. Thank you for, you know, also, yeah, it's a great to, to, you know, to be able to have these conversations. We'll have to continue another one. There's more to be said. Thank you, beautiful people, for listening to another episode of the Getting Mental podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, follow, and share it with your friends and family. If you would like to see more of the Getting Mental podcast, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. We're on every social media platform. You can find us at Getting Mental Podcast. Until next time.